Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers actually love. Product managers and leaders can have a dramatic influence on an organization, and I hope you have seen that. Our influence extends beyond the revenue generated by the products that we help create. We have this uncommon perspective in organizations because our work requires significant cross-functional interactions. A lot of people don't see that in organizations. They just stay within their function primarily. And we also have to have knowledge of what other functions do. The combination of our capabilities and experience means we should be part of transformation in our organizations, improving what is in our sphere of influence from our group or even to the entire organization. My guest is co-author of the new book, Leading Transformation, and was also the executive director of Lowe's Innovation Labs and is now the CEO and co-founder of Uncommon Partners. He is Kyle Nell, and he shares some great insights in this discussion, including how to envision the future by literally using science fiction, using story and narrative to influence others, turning barriers to innovation into allies, such a great story, I hope you really pay attention to that one, and personal transformation as well. You'll find a written summary of the discussion with Kyle at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 202, as well as any links that we talk about. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. No, thank you. Glad we got to have a chance to talk. You wrote this new book I was really interested in. It's called Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future. And while the book caught my attention, something else, frankly, caught my attention more. And that's because I saw your background was executive director of Lowe's Innovation Lab, something that you did, I think, for like six years. Yeah. Curious about that. I'm sure we'll talk about how that influenced the book. But frankly, Lowe's is not what comes to mind when I think of Innovation Labs. And I'm sure listeners would kind of like to hear, you know, just the big picture. What was your experiences like there? Yeah, I think it even starts before I got to Lowe's, which was I started in academia to learn how people make decisions. I, yeah. I'm a behavioral scientist by trade. And I learned very quickly that if you really want to make uh, apply stuff, academia is probably not the best place to do it. Hmm. So I had all these crazy ideas and then I um, decided to go and put them forth in the real world. And the main thing was, how do you get people to understand the future and then do something about it? Okay. And, uh, and so I had researched all these different things and at the time, behavioral economics was just starting to become into the, become a thing. And, and uh, neurosciences, applied neuroscience, practical use of neuroscience uh, beyond medical treatment was starting to become a thing. So anyways, all this stuff was swirling around, but I needed to go prove this out because no one had actually done any of these things. And, on, and then in the crux of it was really innovation as a field is always seen as this mysterious, magical land. I mean, what are the, what are the stories that are told? It's Steve Jobs, it's Elon Musk, it's Thomas Edison. So they're these great men stories. And yes, they are great men, um, but, but it's always wrapped in this serendipitous magic. And that's just, I always felt like that was just such garbage. Because what that does is it puts companies like, like, like a Lowe's, a large legacy organization with so much potential wrapped up kinetic energy and makes them feel like, oh, well, we can't also be like a startup or we can't be like a Google which is just total garbage, I just thought. I mean, there's, there's nothing separating it. So, But then the question was, how do you unlock it? And if you can, how do you really systematize it and make it happen? And so that was my goal. So I, 
left grad school, convinced somehow cajoled my way into working at Walmart. Um, so we moved my, my wife and I moved to Bentonville, Arkansas, which was an amazing experience. And then I got recruited to Lowe's and I didn't start off working in innovation at Lowe's. I started off running international marketing research. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, in due course, a lot of these ideas and things started creeping out because that was my ultimate agenda. Uh, and then that's why I did this at Lowe's. So no one could go, I work at X. I can't also do all these things. It takes all of that, all of that out of it, right? Anyone right. can do these. And that was the whole point of this. Right. Um, and that was why I spent six and a half years at Lowe's was to prove these ideas out. And then it worked very, very well. Um, and then I wanted to leave to be able to share it with others because that was the whole point of why I even started this journey in the first place. Cool. And just for people that don't know, why don't we highlight just a few of the Lowe's innovations? Mm-hmm. I remember seeing this announcement and I, I tried to find the robot and never could because I think it was in Silicon Valley or San Francisco. Or West West. Yeah. But there was a cool robot that would help customers out and do some inventory yeah. management, right? Yeah. So that, uh, that was the infamous uh, Lobot or Lowe's robot. Yep. And so the first autonomous robots and they speak multiple languages and you talk to it, it talks to you. And then it navigates you inside the store. So you can say like, oh, I'm looking for hammers and it will take you to exactly where those hammers are. Yep. And then while it's doing that, it's also doing inventory tracking um, all along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyways, that was, that was one thing in conjunction with a, with a very small at the time robotics company named Fellow Robots, which is now those robots are being used globally in Asia and Latin America and in the U.S. too, not just at uh, Lowe's. Quick story on that for me, because I'm wired as an innovator, this probably had more impact on me. But in my area, living here in Colorado, Home Depot came into the area first, and that was kind of my yeah. go-to store, right, for home improvement. And we were building a house at the time and you know, needed lots of stuff. When I saw that announcement about the robot, I thought, wow, I got to start checking out Lowe's. And it is what drove me to start going and being a Lowe's customer, because I thought, mm-hmm. if they're doing that, that, that's a reason to shop there. Well, there you go. I mean, you hit on one of the main reasons. So even though these things didn't spread immediately into, into the entire system, mm-hmm. I would get emails like that all the time about, oh, I, I never really considered Lowe's to be this innovative company. I started shopping there and then realized this is just a great place to shop. So that's good. But then also on the employee side, I can't tell you how many emails I got from people saying, oh, I joined the accounting team because one of the reasons why was because I saw what your team was doing and I saw that is where the company is going. Right. That's what I want to be a part of. They'll never work on my team. They'll, that it, they'll never even be really a part of that, that leading edge, probably. But that's the kind of thing that people want to be a part of, right. both on the customer side and employee side. So and that's awesome to hear. Yeah. Awesome to hear. Yeah, you're starting to paint a vision, right? Seeing some cool things yeah. going on. Let's get into your book a little bit. Just as yeah. I look through the contents, the table of contents, I thought that this could have easily have been titled, instead of leading transformation, leading innovation. And I was just curious, uh, you're one of th- three authors on the book, if there were any discussions about that and kind of how you see the two playing off each other. Yeah. So, so one, of, one of the biggest features that we did is, is everything has an experimental design aspect, right, in the, in the book. And then we also applied that when writing the book, too. So one of the things is we, we ran different versions of the book title and the subtitle uh, in front of people, like people who would, we think would be buying the book while they're wearing EEG headsets and eye tracking goggles. And we saw that the word innovation is just kind of, frankly, kind of a little played out. Mm. It, uh, it's, it's gone to almost to the, to the world of natural where it kind of means almost nothing. Um, and, and really what this is, is it's, it honestly and truly was about transformation and transformation doesn't just have to be what we call in the book, big T transformation, you know, where we're completely transformed, 
What this is, is more about little T transformation. So your own personal transformation, mm-hmm. the transformation of your group, your department, and then that ultimately leads towards these larger, more, you know, grandiose transformations. So it really did fit well with the title and what we were, what, what the book's actually about. Yeah, that, that sounds like some serious science going on there just to test out yeah. the title, right? That's a whole nother yeah. topic by itself. Sure. Yeah, it, innovation is a term I use all the time, and also it is well played out, right? You, you always have to kind of describe what you actually mean by this thing. Exactly. Uh, and, and I also appreciate how you frame that, that this is a book about transformation, whether it's at the personal level, your group, your team, up to the organization. Mm-hmm. All, all of us are in some state where we want to get better and at times really need to get better. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. You're one place to become a product master. TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. One thing that stood out to me that was this concept of envisioning the future. You talked about that in your experience here, you know, how you got into Lowe's, right? Understanding the future and wanting to do something about it. Steve Jobs is probably admired for many things, but that is one of his characteristics that gets talked about a lot is his ability to really see what was going on. When they were younger, Bill Gates, you know, they were friends. And and, and the late interview that they did together, that was something that Bill Gates shared was, I really wish I had that ability of yours to see the future. And he was being sincere that something that uh, apparently Jobs was good at. You have an actual framework for doing this, which I found really interesting and you suggest you envision the future by using science fiction. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, even to even to go back to Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs read a lot of speculative fiction and science fiction. Mm-hmm. And he credits a lot of his ideas from those things. So, and if you, you go to anybody, Elon Musk talks about it at length. It's, there's some of the things that are in our book. Um, anyway, so a lot of these great innovators are taking their ideas from speculative fiction, science fiction. And so... Why can't we do that too in a more systematic way? Right. In the same way that we use processes and systems to help us with things we're not naturally good at. I'm not naturally a very good accountant, so I have accounting systems to help me. Why can't we do the same thing for for envisioning the future, right? Rather than relying on the serendipity or the you know the, the innate ability of someone mm-hmm. um, only. Nothing wrong with that. That's awesome, but that's not the only thing that can work. So basically, taking that and then trying to come up with a process that would help anybody get there. And really, it was lifting from Joseph Campbell, who I have a pretty serious obsession with. You know, he was able to go and to really take a lot of the narrative frameworks that currently existed at the time and to really lay out what made a real story. And from that, we were able to get, you know, George Lucas famously stole from him. You know, they were friends late in Joseph Campbell's life. 
and many, many others. So I thought, okay, well, if that works in narrative and just in good storytelling and great compelling stories, and I had seen in my academic work that the only way that people really understand and ingest new information and then do something with it, and then to do something with it is really important, is through stories. And we've been doing that since time began, sitting around the proverbial campfire telling stories about, you know, the mastodon that will kill you, like all that stuff. But we, we don't do that in business. I was shocked when I got into, you know, the quote unquote real world. And what passed for a story was just a chronological series of events. That's not a story. That's like a, a furniture assembly diagram. Right. That's not a story. Right. And this is the hero's journey, right? That, that kind yes, of body exactly. picture and what Lucas picked up on for Luke Skywalker. I love that yeah. hero story. And you're right. In business, so often we start with here. Here's a list of tasks to do. You know, yes. something like that. Instead of the problem, all good stories start with the problem. You know, yes. Luke Skywalker's problem was he was actually feeling like he could be more than he actually was, and and he was stuck in this place that he didn't really want to be. And his problem was he couldn't get there. And then the events changed, right. and they they all start with a good problem. And we don't do that in business a lot of the time. We don't actually talk about, hey, here's the problem. What can we do about this? Yeah. And tied up in that problem is always an opportunity, right? What is the opportunity? You know, what's the mindset of a large legacy organization? It's one of mitigation typically. Mm -hmm. And how do we, you know, stabilize the environment so we can continue to exist? You know, the the startup thinks like, what is the opportunity? How can I thrive in this disruption? And it's a a very unique mindset. And that's really the only thing the startups have over the legacy organization. They don't have any money. They don't have any channel dominance or customer understanding. They have nothing other than that mindset. So then how do you bring that into that point, right? Yep. And then, you know, going back to the hero's journey, right? There's, there's, there's so many ways to dissect the hero's journey, but there's really three huge component pieces, right? One is that, to borrow the Luke Skywalker analogy, you know, there's that discontent that happens, but then there's a call to adventure. Right. So when he has that opportunity to go on that adventure, he could have just said no and stayed on that, you know, desert planet and been a moisture farmer with his uncle Lars. And many people do, like they don't take the red pill. Right. Um, so then how, so, but then he has to go through all the pain and suffering of going to Dagobah and becoming training to become a Jedi in order to become the person you're supposed to be. And, and individuals have to go through that same process. So I start most of the time when I work with companies, I always start with, this is your call to adventure. Like I, I'm literally telling you, this is your opportunity to, to transform. You can choose to take it or not take it, but this is what it is. And if we can get more people to look at their life and look at their job that way, I think we'll see a lot more of the things that we expect the future to become. And in that process, there is some discomfort, right? There's the oh, yeah. moving into the unknown. And I want to ask you about the moving into the unknown, but just to wrap up the science fiction thought a little bit, one of the things that I know you did at Lowe's was you hired science fiction writers to help envision the future. Yeah. Can you just share kind of how that was structured, what you got out of that? So once again, if it goes under the guise of the only real way that you ingest new information is by using story. Well, why don't you use professional storytellers? Hmm. We're really good at this, right? Hmm. And science fiction, the reason why I love science fiction so much is it's forward looking and it's assumptive. You know, you're making a lot of assumptions based on data here and now, which is really what we would call strategic forecasting, right? right? In any other setting, it just happens to have a narrative wrap around it. Um, so anyways, that's why what we, what the process looks like this, and there's different variations, but essentially you take, all of your marketing research and trend data, you package it in some sort of salient, tangible way, and then you send that off to a series of that, that don't talk to each other, science published, good science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. And the only real prompts that you give them is the time horizon, so like 10 years, and the primary location of the story. So say Cleveland, 
Okay. And then you just see what they come back with and they come back with real short stories. And the thing that's always so amazing to me is how much they triangulate on some of the key things and the similar things. And then we take that and we go down to a next level and say, okay, well, this one's a little too weird. This one's a little too safe. This is where we think we really want to go. And then, then we continue to iterate and build on top of that until we have an actual story with characters, conflict and a narrative arc. So the first time I ever did this, which was gosh, eight years ago now. And I went and I had this, I literally turned those short stories into comic books. And the reason why I did that is that it's a behavioral economics thing. Yeah. No one, no, no executive in my company had ever received a strategic document in comic book form before. And I didn't do PowerPoint. I literally just passed out these comic books to the, to the chiefs and we read comic books about the future. And they all laughed at me. They thought I was ridiculous. But then they were able to get past that and say, oh, to your point, here's the future problem mm-hmm. of virtual and augmented reality. This is before Oculus Rift came out of Kickstarter. No one was talking about this in any you know, retail way. Right. And then here's the opportunity that's attached to it. So it didn't become just a mitigation thing. It became like an opportunistic, what could we be if we were able to harness this? I love that. In the, in the comic book format, right? That, that whole procedure, that process seems really brilliant for coming up with some new ways of thinking about things through the eyes of science fiction and storytellers. I love the comic book format because it incorporates a bit of this play in the process too. And we all, if, once we give into the play aspect, we all actually are better at adopting something new if it's play as opposed to feeling like it's work. Yeah. I didn't have to give all of these, you know, the virtual reality market's going to grow to be a $40 billion thing in the next five. That was totally not even part of it. Didn't even matter. You could see how it play out in someone's life. Yep. And that's, that's was was so important. That's awesome. I, I'm a fan of science fiction. I, I grew up watching reruns of the original Star Trek series. Yeah. And, you know, that was a series in the late 60s. And it's amazing, right? That was So we have to think back quite a ways about how some of the things came about since then. And we didn't have personal computers until the early 80s showing up. No one was talking to their computers until a few years ago. Yes. You know, th- these things that were flip phones that are now smartphones, you know, that we had were on there right away. Mm-hmm. And even the cool doors that like you go to go to a store now and the doors slide yeah. open for you automatically. These were all just envisioned out of the story writers' heads. And it's exactly amazing right. that we see so much come out and play. I mean, come to reality often just from science fiction stories over time. If you, if you ask someone like, and I do this often, if you ask people to, to tell you what the future of work looks like in 50 years, mm-hmm. almost always people will envision some sort of minority res- report style, throwing your arms around with data. And that's just because of that movie. Right. If you look at the actual ergonomics of it, it doesn't work very well. You can't keep your hands up like that. Right. But we all think that way because it's just become part of like the subtext of what we think the future is because of that, of, because of that awesome movie. Yep. Right. Those stories have so much power. That's a great way to influence others too, is through stories. So we teed up this other topic just a little bit ago about this uncomfortable nature of actually going through a transformation at times because we're learning something new, we're doing something new. Whatever we're transforming, right? A group, a business unit, the whole organization that can feel uncomfortable because we're kind of navigating in the dark. We don't know what to expect. It's all new. And there's this one quote from a CEO that I know of that was helping his company lead a transformation. And he was getting some pushback from his executive team. And he said, well, let's just try this path for a year. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work, we can always go back to what wasn't working before. Yeah, And that's the real need for transformation because things aren't working or working the way we need them to. But it is really scary moving into that unknown. And this could be a whole discussion all by itself, but certainly teed up in the book. Give us just some insights about navigating that unknown. You know, the, the current train of thought inside of innovation is to focus on the customer. 
Mm-hmm. And I would say that's great, but that shouldn't be your primary focus initially. Your mm-hmm. primary focus should be your first customer should be your executive team or whoever the decision makers are so you can get something done. You'll never get to the customer if you can't get through that gauntlet first. And I'm always amazed at how little thought and, and, and really diligent effort is put towards thinking through that problem. And, and that's what I think the primary issue is, is understanding the organization and then helping it to be able to transform almost like a jujitsu kind of thing, using its weight against itself so you can get, get forward. So one of the things that I talk about in the book that I did but back to Joseph Campbell was, okay, if I want to, if we want to get this transformation done, whatever that is, what is the actual deliberative process on paper that the organization says is how you get a decision make decision made. And then even more importantly, kind of what's the, what I call the black market decision-making structure of how people you really need to influence and things that really need to be done in order to make that happen. And then what I literally would lay that out and I would do that at home. So people wouldn't see my, uh, my craftiness, but I would lay that out with, with post-its and then I would write down the people in those bottlenecks. So we call those the bottlenecks. And then I wrote, would write down what their archetype was, you know, to borrow Carl Jung and also Joseph Campbell, you know, hero, outlaw, caretaker, all that stuff. And then I did the same thing for myself. And almost always, whenever there's conflict, it's because my archetype and their archetype does not match up. Hmm. And, and then if you go, then I would write down in just in words what they wanted, not what I wanted them to want, but what they wanted. And then I would write that down for myself. And then you could all, and then if you have that, you can almost always find bridges of language to be able to cross that chasm. An example is legal. You know, every innovation person has their struggles with legal and risk, right? Mm-hmm. I initially had that problem too. Yeah, and and, and the big reason why, just for make, make sure that it makes sense to everyone. Yeah, yeah. They're taught through school to say no, right? If you go to a lawyer, their first yeah. their education tells them to say no. That's the first reaction. They're about risk mitigation. Exactly. And so when I went through that, it was when I would come to them initially, I'd be like, "Oh, stores in space, which we built, and a bunch of other things." And they're thinking, oh, I have to shut this guy down. He is scary, right? Right. Because their archetype usually is a caretaker. And that's good. Like you want the lawyers to make sure that, that the thing doesn't get burnt down. And mine was also to caretake the company, but, but by laying the groundwork for the future so it could exist. And it wasn't until I realized that we were trying to do the same thing, but coming out of very different ways. Then I started to use different language like it's, uh, it's risky not to take risk. And then you can lay out all of the very scary near-term examples of large companies that didn't take measured risk and they don't exist anymore. And then all of a sudden, I became and my group became part of the solution instead of the problem. And those folks actually became my best friends at work. And I, it sounds corny, but I could really go in there and I could like lay out, I have this like half of an idea. It's totally insane. Help me think through what the structure is and how we can get it through. Very different thing than that combative legal meeting mm-hmm. later on completely flipped everything for me. And, um, and it became once again, like how do we get people together that never would really normally work together and find that commonality? Cause no one comes into work and says, I want to screw things up for everybody. Right. Or at least I hope most people don't. Right. Um, and so laying it out and literally writing it down and thinking about it deliberatively is, is really a, a freeing and an awesome exercise. And it's something you can do in your personal life. You can do it also. I mean, in, in just about anything. I had this really cool experience with the Center for Creative Leadership that did the Myers-Briggs type indicator with the group. And I've been through MBTI a few times, but Mm. they they did it just extraordinarily well in this setting. 
And one of the things that I recognized was the two people in the group, this was a, a week-long activity, right? So we got to know each other pretty well. And the two people in the group that annoyed me the most mm-hmm. were ones that were just very different from how I yeah. I think about life, right? And after we did the MBTI, I recognized that they were the ones that helped me think in ways that I should be, right? And so I wanted, I started wanting them on my team when we were doing team activities. And it's just like you said, these people that were barriers to what you were trying to accomplish, once you figured out how to talk in their language, what they wanted, so you could get what you wanted, they stopped being barriers and they became some of your best friends. We appreciate those differences. Uh, It's just amazing how that happens. And and, and one of the things that I came to the realization is that I'm usually the problem. Hmm. Not they are the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Taking that personal responsibility. Yeah. If you're, if you start off with the assumption that I need the one that needs to fix it, then instead of throwing stones, you're going to like, just come up with, try to try to come up with something to fix it. Right. And that always, almost always makes things even a little bit better. As you're sharing that process you went through, gosh, that's a great one to detail and learn more about that through your book. I, I was thinking about how many VPs and organizations I've talked to when I asked them about, you know, what's an example of an innovation you're proud of, something that you accomplished recently, and they'll identify it. And then I ask, you know, how did that come to be? Almost all the time, they worked around the system. Yes. That they, that they knew where the barriers were and that they actually used the system. They knew it was going to get shot down. Yes. So they didn't tell, they were almost always stealthy, right? They didn't tell anyone what was going on until they had enough momentum, they had customer interest. And then they, they released it and talked about it. And it's interesting that, the, unfortunately, the barriers in place in organizations are not purposeful at all, but they're there that make it difficult for us to actually add value for the customer and, consequently, our organization. And like you said, it's risky to not take risks. So, very cool. I'm, I'm really glad you shared that. I think there's good insights. It works. I mean, it works. And also, like I said, in your personal life, just, it's, it works the exact same way. Yep. Really good. You talked about the, this leading transformation can occur at multiple places. A lot of uh, everyday innovators listening, you know, we certainly may have influence over a team, maybe not the organization. Certainly there are leaders that are listening that would, that would. We all have influence over ourselves. Can you just talk a little bit about, about applying this idea for our own transformation? And, and if you have an example of that, that, that's always better. So I would take whatever it is, what is your sphere of influence is what, how I would look at it. Mm-hmm. If you're a, if you're a, um, a sole contributor and, that, and that's your role, that that's your, then, you, then you are the person that your sphere of influence. You could have a group, small or big or whatever. That's how I, how big my universe would be. And, and then the, the funny thing, the paradox is if you transform yourself or transform your group, you tend to get more responsibility and then it grows. The people that just focus on their job, their universe seems to kind of collapse on itself. And they're mm-hmm. the first one laid off. They're always marginalized. They could feel disaffected. So that was my experience too. You know, I didn't start off as the innovation guy at Lowe's. I started off running international research. But within my sphere of influence or within my sphere of, response, sphere of responsibility, I innovated. I made things better. I pushed the boundaries. I challenged existing assumptions and longitudinal data, which is kind of insane in a large company. Saved the company a ton of money. We got better insights. We were able to make better decisions, which gave me more and more credibility and expanded that sphere of re- responsibility and influence until I became the innovation guy. Um, and, and, and so I, that's what I would say is just start wherever you are and challenge everything under a larger, uh, narrative, what you want to do. Hmm. Once again, shock how me, how few people actually have a, a personal narrative of what they're doing and right. where they want to go. Right. And how that fits into the organization you're working at. Yeah. It's really that simple. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a very, you know, this is an overused word, but a very empowering thing 
to be able to have that. You can go through anything if it's for a larger purpose. You really can. Yeah, that's a really good point in a separate discussion. I'm in this mastermind group that meets once a week. And part of our discussions is on mindset. And it came mm-hmm. up recently about what, what's our big why, right? What is our, our why in life, right? Fundamentally, mine is to help equip and inspire people for you know some transformation, whatever, however they want to get better. And specifically, it's for inspiring and equipping product managers to have more mm-hmm. influence and more success in their organizations. And we were talking about the, our whys. And one thing came up is, well, how do you get there? And one mm-hmm. tool that I find useful is just coming up with a personal brand statement. Uh-huh. I was trying to find a template for this. You might know of one. The, the one I used in the past, and I just couldn't find it on my, my computer. When I read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People a long time ago, that there was a really good section in there I know about coming up with a personal mission statement to help you just think through kind of what is your big why, what you're about. How do you want to have that influence in life, which translates to how do we want to have that influence in our team or our organization? Totally agree. No doubt you've done some work like that too, I'm sure, right? Coming up with Yeah. Your... And really, so for me, you know, I um, all of those things are good, but I would, I, you know, just having to see it played out in the in my life and then also in the brain science. Mm-hmm. If you can turn that into a story of how that ladders up to something in the real world right. or where it's going, it becomes all the more tangible and real. And it's not that hard to create. You don't have to be a professional storyteller or writer to do that. Um, even, but so one thing that we do in my family is we write our Christmas card on January 1st of what we would want to be at the end of the year. And it's just kind of like a thing, that, you know, <laughs> we want to do this, we want to do that, but but though, though that's kind of good for all of us to kind of get on board of where we're doing as a family um, and where and what we hope to achieve. And it's just this, those little simple exercises unlock a lot of a lot of opportunity and focus. Yep. Much in the same way that those statements, those brand statements and mission statements help as well. I love that example. You write the Christmas card at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And the first thing came, came to my mind was, of course, Kyle, you do that, right? Why, why would I be surprised about that? Right? Envisioning the future. It was my wife's idea, actually. She, she was like, why don't we do that? You, you are two peas in a pod. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Envisioning the future about what you want. That, that's just great. Amazon encourages their product managers to do something like that by writing the announcement of the launch of the product, even before the product is, is conceived, really. Same exact thing. Same exact thing. Good ideas. As listeners know, I love a good quote. They're often related to innovation or success, something like that. I asked you to bring one for us. Can you share what that is and tell us why that's important to you? Yeah, the one that really, really has helped me more than any was every time you meet with someone important, bring them a gift. And the person that told me that was not saying to bring, you know, a bottle of wine or something like that, but it's to bring them something that they can use that helps them. Yep. And what, what I, what every single time I ever met with an executive at any company that I work with, I always bring them something tangible. And then that provides them the ability to go and explain the work that we're doing together in a way that makes them seem smart. Mm-hmm. And for all the people around them, like you said, change is hard. There are going to be naysayers. It's hard. Even if you have something that's even a half of a prototype to be able to put that on the desk at the board meeting or the executive meeting, or even just, it lives on your desk. That is much, much more powerful than the all the thousand reasons that someone is saying no. Right. But- and every time, and so every time I'm going to have a meeting with someone important, I always think, what can I physically bring to that meeting? And it also helps to form a focus of what I need to produce and what's actually going to have value rather than just further conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would suggest is always think about what you can bring to help enable that person that you're meeting with. And then you become the go-to person and then the person that they want to bring along 
<laughs> and that's and that's what I've seen in my career too. Is I built those relationships with those executives as they were promoted, they promoted me, and it just became this virtuous cycle. Yep. So, so we're not talking about bringing cookies. So something that actually no. helps them achieve their objectives and helps further mission you're on, right? The agenda that you want to accomplish too. Exactly. And you talked about uh, physical things, but I would also think that there's times where, like, if you brought the sound bite that helps to communicate something, you know, for, for that leader to say, this is why we're doing it. Yes. But that would be really useful too. Yeah, exactly. So whatever it is that they need that will help them, that's thinking about it every meeting, coming at it with that lens, mm-hmm. the meeting. Because what do you usually do when you go to meet with somebody before you think about what they can give you? Yep. But if you think about what you can give them, it goes back to like, how do you build a bridge? And it becomes the paradox of, of it. You know, if you, if you give, give a little, you get a lot. And it's amazing how that I've seen that play out over and over and over again. Really good information, Kyle. So you left Lowe's. You're not just writing books these days. You have a new organization called Uncommon Partners that you founded. It's a transformation company that helps organizations put into practice the concepts from your book, you know, Leading Transformation. Tell us about that. And for listeners that just want to find out more about that organization and certainly about where to find your book, give us the details there. More information is on uncommonpartners.com. Um, but essentially what it is, is all of these crazy, wild and crazy ideas that I had, some of most of which played out at Lowe's, but then continue, um, you know, it's the process is never done um, as we, and then to take all of this that worked at Lowe's and other places that are documented in the book and to bring it to others. So we're working with governments now and large organizations, legacy organizations all over the world um, to help them transform. There's not a single organization that I've found that says we're good. Right. <laughs> We've got this figured out. Right. Um, so helping them go through that s- similar process. And there's a large, like I said, there's a very structured process for how we go through it. Um, and the thing that's been so awesome is to see that just how similar almost all of the problems are, no matter the industry, no matter the age of the organization, or no matter the location or culture, mm-hmm. they're the same exact struggles everyone has. So anyways, we're doing that with them. And, uh, and the whole crux of it was, you know, once again, if you could do this at Lowe's, you can literally do this anywhere. Well, it's being proved out now by all the, all the organizations we're able to work with. And it's been so fun. Excellent. But also spending a lot of time teaching at, uh, at our at good friends at Singularity University um, all over the world, um, but specifically in Mountain View and, and other places as well. Good. And I'll make sure the links for that are in the show notes. So uncommonpartners.com. And I'll find a link for Singularity University if I'm aware of that organization. And certainly the book. A link to Amazon. Is that the easiest way to find your book? Yeah, link to Amazon. Also, it's a Harvard Press book, so you can get it on the Harvard, uh, Harvard Biz website. But yeah, Amazon probably the easiest for everybody. Awesome. Kyle, I really appreciate your time and the information. This is a great book to read. I hope people get their hands on it. And a lot of good insights there about what product managers and leaders bump up against, which is just getting their organization to accept their ideas. And you gave us some really good practical advice on how to kind of map out that decision-making process, who you need to influence, identifying the barriers to work with and not try to work around and make a difference there. That was very actionable. I really appreciate the ideas. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where you make your move from product manager to product master, gaining the influence and confidence you need to create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Kyle at TheEverydayInnovator.com slash 202. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at TheEverydayInnovator.com.